Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. I had the pleasure of getting together with a couple of friends today that I hadn't seen in ages, like literally seven months. And we live, I mean, like 20 minutes away from each other. So it was so nice to connect with them again and it was just a really lovely time and I will be the first to admit I am horrible about keeping up with people. I I have no doubt that I have text messages that I have forgotten to respond to from people that I really truly care about. I just I get so busy and I forget to do things and it's it's hard. <laughs> And so if you are one of those people who texted me and I did not respond, text me again, yell at me, because I know, I know it's something that I need to work on. Um, because yeah, I will think I've responded and I actually haven't. And I will get busy doing other things and then never look to actually like check if I did the thing. Um, so yeah, that is my public apology. But I also want to give a reminder to to everybody out there to take this opportunity to reach out to somebody that you haven't talked to in a while. You know, maybe it's a family member, a friend, a teacher. Um, just, you know, let them know that you're thinking of them. Because um, it was really, really nice today to connect with my two friends. Um, and yeah, we are we are keeping on. I did a little bit of uh, Christmas shopping today. If you listened to previous episodes, then you know I don't really like Christmas. But, you know, I do the thing. I do like, I do really like um, making my cats open presents. So on Christmas Eve, they get to open their stockings. And then on Christmas Day, they get to open their actual presents. And like, yeah, I sit there and I wrap every little mouse. <laughs> it's ridiculous I know it is and I know that they don't give two shits they they are so displeased with everything that I do but yet I'm like very concerned with making sure that they have a lovely Christmas and so I am um, I went to Petco today I was actually looking for litter um, but I ended up getting like some treats and I was very very tempted because there was a, a cat scratcher that was like corrugated cardboard, but it was in the shape of a TV and then it had little antenna, like springy things on top. I really wanted to get it for them. And honestly, I still might because it was really cute. And it'd be like watching kitty TV. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll let everybody weigh in on that and uh, maybe they'll end up with their little their little TV scratcher. But um, today we are talking a lot about inclusivity and empathy. And I'm super excited to bring this conversation to you all. Um, you know, they these have become pretty big buzzwords within the past several years. Um, particularly related to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and while that is a very important movement and it needs to be talked about, 
we also tend to forget about all of the intersections. And so, you know, black trans lives matter. Black women's lives matter. Black children's lives matter. There are just so many, so many intersections. And we all have something that makes us feel other. And we can all relate to that feeling of exclusion. That feeling of not belonging. We all have something within us that is different from the communities that we are in, from the communities that we are raised in. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Different doesn't have to be bad. But for so long, we have viewed it as that. And so my guests today are here to help kind of deconstruct that notion and share how we can make the world a better place. I'm joined today by the good doctors of Abbey Research, Dr. Kristen Donnelly and Dr. Aaron Hinson. Abbey Research exists to empower inclusive communities to cultivate and activate their empathy. Empathy is an intellectual posture, not an emotional response, and they believe it is powered by curiosity and is mandatory to change the world. They have an active YouTube channel, a thrice-weekly podcast, and travel the world giving workshops and keynotes to help organizations in their expanded empathy. Dr. Kristen Donnelly is a TEDx speaker, international empathy educator, and researcher with two decades of experience in helping people understand the beauty in difference and the power in inclusivity. She is one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, COO of their parent company, and an unapologetic nerd for stories of change. Kristen lives outside of Philadelphia with her husband, where they are surrounded by piles of books and several video game consoles. Dr. Aaron Hinson is a researcher, educator, and tea enthusiast with over a decade of experience in cultivating curiosity in herself and others. As one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, Erin advocates for inclusion, equity, and understanding through conversation. She lives in Pittsburgh with her mother, cat, and international gin collection. Please, everybody, give a very warm welcome to the good doctors, Dr. Kristen Donnelly and Dr. Erin Hinson. Do you feel stuck and unmotivated? Want to create your dream life but don't know where to begin? If you're interested in improving your relationships, communication skills, or feeling more comfortable in your skin, I can help. Together we can determine what's holding you back from living your best life and help to quiet that negative Nancy residing in your head. If you've been interested in working with a coach who is optimistic and authentic and empowers you to be as well, then schedule your free 30-minute chemistry session today by going to empoweredauthenticity.net. Again, that's empoweredauthenticity.net. Well, welcome, Erin and Kristen. I am so happy to have you on my podcast today. And we're delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the work that you were both doing. Yeah, I'll go. I'll take this one. (laughs) Um... So we call ourselves the Good Doctors of Abbey Research. Abbey Research exists to educate and empower empathetic communities and also apparently uh, create alliterations. Um, (laughs) We do use other words that don't start with the letter E. Um, But fundamentally, we're social scientists. We have degrees in anthropology and sociology, respectively. 
And we didn't want to be in academia. We knew that pretty much even going into our PhDs, which is where we met. Um, and we came out of that deciding we wanted to do something different. Kristen graduated a year before I did, and she can get into the family business aspect of it because she's very good at telling that particular part of our story. Um, but Kristen started Abbey Research. I started it emotionally with her <laughs> and then joined her physically in 2017. And what we've come to believe our duty is, is to teach people about empathy. And we do it in four ways. We have our, a very active YouTube channel, which is actually how we got started um, doing a lot of this stuff. We started the Analyzing the Handmaid's Tale on, on the YouTubes, and it's gone from there. We now have a podcast as well, which is basically our repurposed YouTube videos, because <laughs> we're not doing that twice. And then we do uh, workshops on the three topics we talk about, and keynotes and conferences and lectures as well. So we do that as a way to have these conversations about what it means to be empathetic and inclusive. We talk about emotional intelligence all the time. Uh, so that is the the what's of what we do. Um, and Kristen, I'll let you, you talk about the family business part of it because it's a huge part. I'll let you. I will give you the permission. <laughs> Thank you for so much for your benevolence. So I've been part of a family business for about 30 years. My father started it back in 1991. And now my brother and I own the network of companies it's become. And our mission statement is to impact lives and create wealth. And as my brother and I have moved through life, uh, we went through the phases that a lot of children of entrepreneurs go through. I'm never doing this. I'm never touching this. Oh my God, I really want to do this. Okay, I really want to do this and change it. All those kind of things. And what we've come to understand is that my brother is called to impact lives through the creation of the things we manufacture, where we manufacture the stains that diagnose cancer, for instance, and um, some really important epoxies to fix ships when they're underwater so that folks on submarines stay safe. And then kind of my job in joining with Aaron is to impact lives and create holistic wealth, emotional, physical, financial, spiritual, social et cetera, et cetera, through the creation of ideas. And so fundamentally, the idea that we're all operating on, my brother, um, and as he works with our, our manufacturing employees, then Aaron and I, as we work with our clients, is that if we all understood each other a little bit better, our each of our human experiences would be enriched. And none of us know how to human. We're all figuring it out as we go along. And the best way to do it is to figure that out together. And Aaron and I make money with words and my brother makes it with hands, with his hands as he makes things. But basically, we're just looking to leave the world better than we found it. And the have Aaron and I love having the hard conversations that other people may not have the bandwidth, education or uh, time to have. And we like getting into the nitty gritty of things. Yeah. And I think that empathy is something that we are learning more about. I'd say within probably like the past five years, it's really kind of moved to the forefront of conversations. And it's so important. I, you know, personally, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, we need more empathy in this world. We need more empathy. So uh, my question then becomes like, how do you teach empathy? Bizarrely, really easily and really difficultly. So 
in order to answer that question, I need to say that our viewpoint is that empathy is a lot more about mental understanding than emotional awareness. Mm -hmm. Because the first, in order to get to emotional awareness, you've got to do the mental work first. And in a lot of conversations about empathy, we skip that part. We skip directly to where, you know, you understand other people's emotions. And we kind of call crap on that a little bit because we think it it's not actually possible in a way that is accessible for everybody. And there's a lot, I talk to a lot of people who study empathy from different perspectives, clinical psychology, educational psychology, and they have a lot of different things. And I, all of it comes down to me, right, but that doesn't make sense to everybody. We're trying to talk about empathy in a way that can make sense to literally everybody. And then we can get into nuances later. And the best way we've discovered how to do it is to say that it is a a worldview. It's a framework through which you view the world and that allows you to understand yourself and others differently. And also to kind of get that those are ongoing journeys. So how do you teach empathy? You, you ask a lot of questions. You introduce people to different ideas. Uh, just before we are talking to you, we were live on our YouTube channel talking about a different way to look at communal events and how do we think about getting together and celebrating things post lockdowns or the first round or first two rounds of lockdowns, because who knows how many we're, we're going to walk into. And it's a lot of asking questions and just saying, hey, have you thought about what what would you think of and kind of doing it that way? So it's really simple from our perspective. Getting people to practice it is the hard thing, but that's every piece of research we've done. Inclusivity is really simple. Practicing it is nearly impossible. Un, you know, reframing your idea of trauma, super simple. Practicing it is different. And so that's a big part of our, of our teaching is that we just teach everybody that once you decide to believe something, go do it, put, put feet to your belief and it moves from simple to doable. Yeah. And I'm so excited because you just used a lot of words that I wanted to talk about today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> She's great. We, we just peppered them in there for you. you know? Yes. I love this. This is fa fantastic. Um, so what would you say then is like the biggest barrier for folks to implement practicing empathy and inclusion? What prevents us from just like doing it? Yeah, Ooh, that's a great question. Um, it is a complicated answer, as most things usually are, because I think that's one of the things that we love getting into the weeds about these topics, because we have the time and the energy, and it also like energizes us to, to answer these questions. So one of the biggest barriers, we think, is this idea that you have to have an emotional understanding or an emotional connection. I think like one of the most damaging phrases we have in society is I know how you feel. You can't know how someone else feels. The example Kristen and I use all the time, we lost both of our grandmothers. Both of them died at a very similar time. I'm six months older than Kristen. So we're like same age, same demographic, lots of same intersections. If we want to use that term, we had very different experiences about the deaths of our grandmothers because we had very different relationships. So it's the assumption that emotions are what guides empathy. I think that's a huge barrier. One, because people can opt out of it if they don't feel like they're emotionally skilled in that way. A lot of people opt out of empathy because they're just like, oh no, 
you know, I, I don't really, I don't really do emotions. I'm not a good feeling person. And that gives them the out. So one, I think it's emotions. Two, I think it's the assumptions that we make about other people. I think it's a huge, huge thing. We fill in a lot of blanks in our minds when we encounter difference. And so I think that's a big barrier for people is that they, you know, answer the questions before they even ask them. And so coming into it with an open mind is, is a really important part. We call it a practice because we do it every day and sometimes we're not good at it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the practice doesn't go well. Sometimes I'm not an empathetic person. Um, and I think that's a huge part of it. And I lost the third thing I was going to say. So I don't know if Kristen has anything else to add to that. Well, in terms of why it's hard to practice inclusivity, I'll say that is we think one of the reasons is that we're talking about diversity wrong. And so because we're treating diversity as a goal that we can all achieve if we have the right amount of people in the room or the right alchemy of people in the room, that we get caught so caught up on a, a shallow understanding of diversity that we can never actually cultivate inclusivity. And for instance, it it uh, made me grumpy the other day when I went to, I was on Instagram and I went to check uh, on our business profile and you can kind of like tag yourself as a in different diversities. So it says, well, the only diversity it allows is if you're a black owned business. Super important. That's not a diversity. That's not even a racial diversity. You should be allowed to say if you're an indigenous business or if you're an Asian business or like there, that's not even, that's not even a racial diversity, but the way that we talk about the word diversity and then the relationship between black people and white people as two interchangeable concepts has prevented authentic inclusivity and how we can engage with people also goes back to everything Aaron said. It's not about emotions. This also, the other flip side of it is talking entirely about emotions with empathy allows people to tap out when it's too hard. Mm. And you can tap out temporarily when it's too hard. You can tap out for a day or whatever, but it, this allows us to say, I'm not dealing with that entire group of people because they, they do this to me or they make me this or whatever. And it's one of those, we, it's one of those things where we think we're using one word for 14 different concepts. And that's part of the problem here. We're not denying that there's emotional fatigue at all, at all. I'm a social worker. I, you know, by training, I get it. We actually think it's a much more serious phenomenon than we're actually talking about, but we think talking about it as emotional, as an empathetic, as an empathy fatigue is actually doing a disservice to everybody in the same way that diversity is not a goal because it's a reality. We're all diverse people. We all have diversities living within us. And so it's not that we think there isn't such a thing as diversity. It's that we think we're talking about it in such a shallow manner. None of us can actually do the work of being human at the level of which we're capable. Yeah. And I think um, the thing that can that is the third barrier that I finally remembered, but also goes really well to what Kristen was saying in terms of authentic inclusivity is people get really overwhelmed by things they don't understand. Yes. And so it can seem like a very tall order to learn more about black experiences in America or indigenous experiences or what, what is white privilege or what is the gender pay gap? And like, I think it, it, it can be really overwhelming for people and they don't know where to start. And so they don't start at all. 
And so I think that's the other piece that that we need for this, for empathy, for inclusivity. Um, and that's really fundamentally how we teach it is we have living Google Docs on every subject we can think of. We just made four in the last week because we're academics, we're nerds, and we just love doing bibliographies. But like, that is one of the ways that we feel like we can help in this scenario is we're like, oh, you don't have time to, you feel overwhelmed by this topic. Here's a list of all the YouTube videos I've watched that I found helpful. And it's hard work because it takes a lot to unpack what you thought you knew, to unlearn what you have to unlearn, to reframe the way you see a different person. But it's simple because you can watch, you can do it by watching a YouTube video. You can go on TikTok and find indigenous TikTok, or you can read a book from a different perspective. You know, there's lots of ways to access it, um, but it's, I think it's the fear of being overwhelmed or doing it badly that puts people off a lot too. Yeah. And we talk all the time, like you're going to screw up and you're going to do it badly. Like just accept that and move on. Guilt is an unproductive emotion in talking about inclusivity and moving forward as humans. You're you're going to screw. I screwed up four times today. Welcome to the human experience. <laughs> there is yeah. absolutely no way you're going to do this wrong or right. You're just going to do this. And so move forward, learn as you go. The more, you know, you open your mind to other worldviews and other ideas, the more your actions will pattern after those thoughts. All behaviors start in your brain all of them. So the more you pattern in your brain, the more, uh, the more you'll go, but yeah, all those barriers, Aaron said are totally correct. And then more that we haven't even gotten a chance to mention it's hard work being a human. It's real hard. Mm -hmm. And we like to pretend that it's real easy. And I think that's another one of the barriers. We don't acknowledge how hard this thing is. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And thank you for that explanation, because I think uh, you you touched on a lot of things and a lot of concerns that people do have. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, people are so worried about like the cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I think there are people that do need to be canceled. Um, but I think for the majority of people, it's bringing them into the conversation and saying, hey, like, can you tell me a little bit more about thinking this way and having those open conversations and allowing each other to be wrong and to learn? Um, mm -hmm. Because that's really where it all happens. And I think, too, that, you know, I can speak from my own experience of I grew up in, you know, I grew up poor. I grew up in a trailer park in Iowa. Um, in my school, there was a handful of people of color. There was not a lot of, like, religious diversity. There was not a lot of gender fluidity. And so those are things that I've had to learn as I've encountered people from communities outside of my own. And I think that's also where the idea of intersectionality comes into play, where it's like, even though we have these different experiences, we can probably find something where it's like, oh, I share that experience or I share that background. And so for myself, something that I've kind of had to learn um, and like, it's just, it's pretty fresh in my mind is pronouns, you know, and that was something where it was like, in theory, I was like, yeah, of course, this makes sense. Like, we should refer to people the way they would like to be preferred. And then I was uh, actually about to have a conversation with somebody who uh, identified as non-binary and used use they, them pronouns. And for the life of me, I kept calling them 
uh, the wrong pronouns. And fortunately, it, I was so hard. It, yeah. it is. It's, it's hard. It when is. you've never it encountered it before. And even when you have, like, I have several friends that use um, she, they, or they, him, or they, them, or um, I even know somebody who uses it and is comfortable with that because they don't like it doesn't like they yeah. see it's it's all hard i actually in one there's one person i need to talk to fairly frequently who uses they them and i have a post it note underneath my webcam to remind me because it's practice so it's not even just that when you haven't encountered it it's when it be like give yourself grace if you're like well i met somebody 3 months ago but i'm still bad at it you you'll be bad at it for a little while longer it's okay yeah. Yeah. It's all about practicing and having compassion for each other mm-hmm. and, you know, speaking up and saying, hey, I don't, those aren't my pronouns. Like, please refer to me in this way. And yeah. that's not, you know, an excuse, but it's an understanding. Um, so, you know, kind of to circle back, um, intersectionality is a word that's being used a lot. And I know that you have a fantastic um, description for that. So would you please uh, share that with us? Yeah, uh, we do talk a lot about intersectionality. We are social scientists, as is the person who coined the term intersectionality. So it works for us. Uh, So for anybody who doesn't know, it was coined uh, by, the term was coined by social scientists Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s. And what she was specifically talking about as a Black woman was the way that Black women experience different part, experience either privilege or oppression, mostly oppression, um, because of the intersection of their gender and their race. When you compare it to the experiences of a white woman from a similar set of circumstances, class, you know, urban, rural experience, socioeconomics, all of that education, you will still find a layer of oppression and privilege within that based on the intersection of race and gender. But a lot of people, not just us, but a lot of people have been expanding that concept It was very specifically designed to talk about the experiences of Black women at the time, to talk about all folks on all spectrums and all experiences, and to examine the ways in which you are privileged or oppressed, where literally the intersections of your roads, your identities that are different roads, we we all know what intersecting roads look like. And so I think visually it's a good marker for that. And it's an interesting place to be in as Kristen and I are both highly educated, cisgendered, het, white women to be talking about your experiences in this. Um, But it's important that we frame ourselves that way and that we have these conversations because we can unpack some of the less talked about intersections that we fall into um, that kind of go outside the bounds of race or gender or sexuality. Um, For example, I care for, uh, I'm the primary care for one of my parents and that I experience the world differently, not necessarily oppressed or privileged, but I have a different worldview and perspective on things because of that. And that's not something that is visible when you look at me and you can see 
which intersections I, I tick, or you can fill in those blanks, as I said earlier, right? You might make assumptions based on my appearance, what intersections I fill. But when we talk about diversity and inclusion, one of the biggest things we try to hammer home is this idea that there's a lot of things about other people that you can't see, that you don't know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. I I love that. Yeah. And it's, it is, uh, I know Kristen in your TED talk, which also like you gave two TED talks, like, I mean, that is everybody's dream, right? <laughs> I'm actually about to give my fourth. So I was about to say, she, she's given, <laughs> she's given three. There's you... just only two on YouTube right now as we're all talking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're just like unstoppable then. Just crank <laughs> them out. Yes. She is unstoppable. Yes. At what point does it just become Kristen talks? <laughs> Lord, many, many millennia from now. But this is when I'm blushing furiously and squirming uncomfortably in my chair. So oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. I, I, we're all bad with compliments. All of us. Oh, yes. unless we're sociopaths. So we're just we're learning. <laughs> Glad we um, got confirmation that you're not a sociopath. I'm not a sociopath, but no, I've been incredibly privileged to take the red circle three times and talk about some really important ideas. And uh, hopefully I get to take some more. But yes, back to the first one, the South Lake Tahoe one, which is the one you're referring to. Yes. 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 You use the term other. And I really appreciated that because, um, again, that didn't necessarily label it as privileged or oppressed. It was, this is other. This is something that... <clears throat> it's not considered mainstream in a particular circle. And I, I like that because I think we can all re relate to feeling that other, whether it's in our ideologies or our identities. Um, and I think that um, trauma-informed care is also something that is becoming um, fairly, fairly more mainstream, um, more talked about, and still has a long way to go. Um, I only recently heard about it, I think about a year ago, uh, I attended a conference and I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. And like, it makes so much sense. And it's really, I feel vital um, to practice empathy and to practice inclusivity. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what trauma-informed care is, what it means, and why it's important? Absolutely. So trauma-informed care is a becoming its own industrial complex. So let me say that there's a lot of different scholars that say it means different things. There's different models. There's different everything else. So whoever's telling you what it is, is generally trying to sell you something. What it boils down to is asking people uh, what happened to them instead of what did they do? What, how, like, what about getting context for someone's life is what it boils down to. We especially need to see this for children in dealing with, um, quote unquote, misbehaving children. This, the scholarship around it really came out of urban centers uh, where, you know, we have all of the statistically validated stereotypes of poor behavior and antisocial behavior around the world. Um, but finally realizing that kids don't just like come out of the womb wanting to shoplift. Like there's some shit behind there that we should probably unpack. And there's a lot of ways around it. So we, we don't necessarily talk about trauma informed care within our work, not because we don't practice it, but because we want to take an even further step back. So if I want to imagine trauma informed care as a conversation, I imagine it starting at point G and I would like us to take back to point a, um, Aaron and I talk a lot about 
that the very, very, very basic level what we need to understand is that everybody experiences trauma and that trauma is not comparable. Even within trauma-informed care, there's an there's a kind of unspoken thing that some people experience more trauma than others. And while that may be statistically true, our point is that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your traumas are or how often you experience that or when. In order to truly human with another person, you have to stop comparing your trauma. You have to either stop minimizing yours or maximizing yours. And you have to learn to sit with your trauma and sit with the trauma of others as two separate entities that don't need to be compared. And how we go about doing that I mean, it truly, when people ask me about our work and I'm like, well, we do DEI and we talk about trauma and everything else. And they're like, oh man, talking about inclusivity must be really hard. I was like, I will talk about inclusivity 75 times before I will talk about trauma. <laughs> because, <laughs> because first of all, there's a million people having great conversations about inclusivity. And so we're happy to add our voices and maybe give a little bit of a different thing, but we don't find anybody else talking about trauma the way we're talking about it. And so it really feels like a, like Sisyphus some days of, mm. you know, we're pushing a boulder up and I'm, and someone will be like, but so-and-so's trauma is worse. And I'm like, and you've missed the point. Let's start again. And it's, it's just, it doesn't lead us anywhere productive as is evidenced. She gestures wildly to the planet. It doesn't, it doesn't help. And part of our incredibly pragmatic work, if I'm very honest, Erin and I are just eminently pragmatic people, <laughs> is that we want everyone to get along better. And if we could all get along better, we could all love each other better, love is an action verb that creates cohesion and creates community, then that's what we're working towards. And for that to happen, absolutely, yes, we need trauma-informed care. I love schools that are trauma-informed, hospitals that are trauma-informed. My God, bring it all on. And then we're going to be over here as well saying, but trauma is not comparable. Yes. And let's unpack that too. So that's why we don't necessarily practice it, but we still ascribe to its tenets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And um, I don't have either of you read uh, The Body Keeps the Score. I have. Yes. Erin is working her way through it eventually, but I've read it a few times. Yeah. 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 I, so I read that, um, the summer of 2020 and it really spoke. Oh, that's a time to read that book. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I read it in my MSW program. So I read it a bunch of years ago. Yeah. And I'll great. give you a little background too. Uh, my, so my dad died in February, 2020. So it was like child. Yeah. I was like, let's do this. Let's About party. to say also, do you need a hug and or <laughs> yes. ice cream? How yes. can we help right now? Wow. Always a big fan of ice cream. Um, oh my gracious. I'm so sorry to hear that in all seriousness. That's a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it, it was a lot. And, um, but that really kind of got me interested in learning more about trauma mm -hmm. and, um, you know, this this idea of we're all going through something like mm -hmm. and a lot of times we can't see it. And I always think about, you know, you go to the checkout line and you get a cashier who may not be super happy to be there. And like our immediate instinct is to go, well, what the hell? They're getting a paycheck. Their job is to be happy. And it's not always that easy. It's the whole concept of leave your home life at home is not a reality Possible. nope it's damaging and we can do that when that's built on and that's a part of the system where um men could leave all domestic emotions and chores at home with their wives. That's where we built that system. It's not actually possible even for them. We pretended it's possible for them 
fast forward 70 years. And now as they're all retiring, they don't know what to do with themselves. So it's a toxic system, no matter what. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I also think about, you know, as you were talking about with, with children, but also in the workplace, you know, we have these behaviors that are seen as problematic. Mm. Um, but we don't take the time to ask the person like, Hey, do you realize that you're reacting this way? Or is there something that I'm doing that is causing you to react this way? And can we come to a general understanding? And once we know kind of each other's triggers, then we can have a better understanding and a better way to navigate and move forward instead of constantly saying, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem, when likely this person has been told, you're the problem their entire life. Um, so I think it's so important to take that into consideration and again, move forward with that sense of, of empathy and it's not all about me. It's about us. Yeah. And I think, I mean, w- cause we talk about trauma in two ways, right? We talk about individual personal trauma, the kind of conversations Kristen was talking about and even you're talking about, um, and also communal trauma and the way we experience things communally, because we do live in community whether we have our own personal individual traumas or we have um, communal ones. We, on our live today, we were talking about um, the horrific events at the Travis Scott concert in Astroworld. And those people have now con- experienced a communal trauma that will create bonds between them. But I think when we're talking about this trauma, whatever it is, whatever caused it, it, it informs the way we behave in the world, the way we interact with other people. And it's often something we don't talk about. We don't share with others. We aren't maybe even necessarily aware of it ourselves, but it has all of these thought and pattern behaviors that follow from it. And that's why we like to strip this back, the conversation about trauma back to this essence of you can't compare it. What you can do is be a human in front of another human and say, this is where I'm coming from. Where are you coming from? How can we be in a relationship together? And, you know, you might not get into that at the grocery store checkout line, but you might realize that that person, if you start patterning those thought behaviors in yourself, you might realize that that person has a lot, might have a lot going on in their lives. And, um, it's none of your business what is going on in their lives, but you can treat them with the same level of, of empathy and understanding that you would hope someone would treat you with if it's in a grocery store checkout or in your office or with your family member. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago on a podcast that I was chatting on, like, what what do we think the upside of of doing our practice is? And I joked, I was like, well, the world gets better. Um, I said, <laughs> but we, we fix, fix everything. <laughs> but I said, everything. but very honestly, I'll just speak from personal experience. Since I started actively practicing an empathetic mindset, I am so much less exhausted all the time. I am so much less angry. <laughs> I am much less, a lot of, a lot of things I didn't like about myself. And I'm, it's a whole lot. I mean, there are days definitely where I call my mom and I have a good old rant um, or days where I just look at Aaron. And I'd be like, seriously, seriously right now. Um, and, you know, you want those. Uh, uh, you, you, I'm still a human person. Like, I'm still human. It's how it works. But on the whole, I no longer get frustrated with people as quickly. I no longer uh, see the world as though I am the center of it. 
Whereas before, that's my natural tendency. So every time somebody was mean to me, I assume it was something I did. And it keeps me up all night trying to analyze it. And now I'm just like, they might have some shit going on. Mm -hmm. Until somebody actually tells me I harmed them, I need to assume I didn't. Um, you know, as and I can I can move on. So I'll tell you, I feel more balanced as a person choosing to understand that I am not the center of anyone else's world. And really that's what empathy is, is, is choosing every day and every conversation to understand that you're not that big a deal. And <laughs> the way I always say it is, is that what I wish we could all understand is that we are more valuable than we ever imagine and less of a big deal than we think we are. Mm -hmm. And that's that if we can hold those things in tension, that's the best way to human. And as I'm on the journey to do that, I can speak just from personal experience. Um, and I have incredibly high anxiety. I am on the same level of medication, I promise. But doing this journey has helped the medication work mm -hmm. uh, versus me working against the medication. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those um, unexpected side effects. <laughs> yeah, I just like woke up one morning. I was like, oh my God, I'm not angry all the time. This is incredible. I recommend this to everybody. <laughs> And I think too, like the biggest part of that is uh, the third, actually the third thing that, that we talk about in our work, which is boundary setting and rest, because the biggest thing we practiced with each other in our, in our business partnership and our friendship with this empathy journey is giving each other permission to rest and to take a break. And I think, you know, so much when we attach so much guilt to not knowing things or not understanding things, we put a lot of pressure to learn so much and that, that you know, that you can't take a break or you can't rest from it, but you have to. And in giving each other permission to do that, I think that's helped us have more energy to deal with this ongoing dumpster fire of humanity that it can be sometimes. Because uh, we read romance novels and we watch Hallmark movies and The Voice and we take time out to practice joy as much as we practice empathy. And you have to be able to do that. Otherwise, you're just going to completely burn out, run yourself into the ground and not have energy to care about anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you pointing that out. Uh, rest is so undervalued and we live in very much like a, a, a hustle society where it's like seen as a crime to get eight hours of sleep. Um, but we need it because, yeah, it's, you know, it just goes back to the whole, like, if we're not taking care of ourselves, then we're not showing up well for others either. Um, so I know uh, that I've kept you on for a little bit and I really appreciate our conversation. Um, really, really quick, if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, DE&I programs are coming up all over and I'm seeing them everywhere in businesses. And I think it's great. Um, but I also know that they don't always work. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, um, what do you think businesses are doing well in this area? And how do you think they can improve? It's funny, I'm literally teaching a class on Friday at a conference called Why Your Diversity Program Isn't Working. So <laughs> Uh, this is really fun. <laughs> what we think businesses are doing well is acknowledging that it needs to happen. Mm. Past that, I'm not comfortable making a blanket statement. What I think needs to be done differently, and I know I, I can I can say we, I can speak for Aaron on this, is that we have to stop talking about diversity as a goal. And that 
they need to stop pretending that having different people in proximity means that you're actively inclusive. What the definition of inclusivity is from our perspective and pragmatically from our perspective is that everybody gets a seat at the table and everybody gets to decide who they show up as. It's not just that you're at the table. It's that you are not the token black woman at the table. You are who you want to be at the table. And that's it. Um, and that, you know, I own a business. I co-own a business and our, um, my, my voice is always heard with my brother. He's very, very, my brother and I have a very atypical relationship as siblings. We we're great. <laughs> and, um, but at the end of the day, like he makes the decision, but he's all, my voice is still heard and I get to show up as whoever I want to be. There's times where I'll be like, well, Brian, as a social worker, I hate that decision or, but as a businesswoman, I understand why you're making it. Or as your sister, absolutely, absolutely love that decision. As your business partner, we are never doing that. And I, I get to be both of those. I get to be all of who I am all the time with him. I say my piece. Inclusivity does not mean that everybody gets a, gets like an equal say in the decision. Their voice gets heard. And this is where a lot of organizations fall down, especially religious organizations are like, well, I don't want you know somebody who isn't our religion having a say in our decisions. And I was like, well, they, they should have a say in your, in your decision-making process. You should know what they think about your decision-making process. You get to make a different decision, but you better, you damn well make sure that your decision is, is fully informed. So as a leader, you want as many voices as humanly possible at the table so that your decision is fully informed. Uh, because if you don't, you're going to miss something and you're going to be one of those things we all make fun of on BuzzFeed because nobody double checked that logo with somebody who was, you know, knew what sex work was, for instance, and we all know what I'm talking about. So you got to have a lot of different voices. That's what they're doing wrong. And the, the easy thing for them is that there's a couple quick shifts they can make to have richer conversations. We are not currently seeing a preponderance of companies making that shift but we live in hope and we, whenever we get a chance to go into organizations and have these inclusivity conversations, we find that people leave with some really pragmatic understandings of what to do next. Aaron's already shared a few of those, pick one thing and start there. And we found uh, that people report a lot more success than some of the other programs that are like, let's just hold hands and talk about how hard it is to be a black person in America. That's really needed. I don't think it's necessarily needed in a diversity program because it becomes counterproductive really quickly. And so how do we kind of do this all as a thing uh, requires a lot more pragmatism than we're currently seeing demonstrated by some of our colleagues. Wow. That, oh my gosh. I, I want to keep you on forever and I just want to <laughs> keep talking to you, but I know that you have important things to do. Uh, but I really enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate you both so much for coming on. Um, so the last question that I will ask, um, which is very important, is how can we find your work? How can we support you? What a fantastic question. I would love to answer it for you. We have, we're on all the social medias except TikTok and Snapchat. So anywhere you want to find us, we are Abby Research, A-B-B-E-Y research. Um, you'll have all the links as well um, when this podcast airs. 
So you can find us on the YouTube. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you get notified when we have fantastic conversations about unlearning Thanksgiving or the latest Hallmark Christmas movie that we think is good and or bad. Uh, our podcast is called The Culture Cast and is available on all podcatchers. You can subscribe to that and follow that. Any other information about bringing us into your organization in terms of workshops we deliver, keynote topics we do, whether you want to get Dr. Kristen in a red or blue or purple circle on your stage, she she will step into any color circle, folks. Um, all of that information is available on our website, and you can get a hold of us there, and we'd love to have that conversation. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have been absolutely delighted speaking to you both, um, and I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having us, and the feeling is mutual. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you for listening to Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like more content from Empowered Authenticity, make sure to follow on Instagram at empowered underscore authenticity. We'll see you next week. Let's talk lube. I'd venture to say that all of us should be using lube. It can increase pleasure, comfort, and fun. But it's so important to get good quality lube. Uh, you know, you want to have good ingredients, especially when it comes to sticking things inside your body. That's really important. And if you're not using uh, good quality lubes, then that can lead to uh, damaging your body, uh, particularly with uh, tears. So make sure you're getting a good lube. And you can do that by checking out Pure. That's P-J-U-R. Pure creates premium silicone and water-based lubricants, massage lotions, and skincare products using ingredients of the highest purity made to uncompromising standards. Their products include silicone and water-based lubes designed for anal play, sex toys, vaginal use, and more. Check out the link in this week's episode description to find the pure quality lubricant that's right for you.